everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. Today's guest is Scott King of Ontario, Canada. For today's episode, Scott chose to discuss a show for which we both have attendance bias. February 22nd, 2003 at the U.S. Bank Arena in Cincinnati, Ohio. The February 2003 tour was a very special time to be a Fish fan. During the band's 18-month hiatus, dozens of jam bands gained prominence and began to specialize in specific genres that were generally popularized by Fish to jam band fans. Ironically, because of the rise of the scene, Fish's absence made them more popular for when they returned. And when they did return for this winter tour, anticipation was at an all-time high, and Fish delivered. They offered all-time career highlight jams and shows in this brief 12-show tour. Today's guest, Scott, was going through a transformative time in his life, and being Canadian, he did not usually get the opportunity to see Fish that often. But sometimes the stars line up, and he was able to see a few shows on this memorable tour. And this second night of a two-show run in Cincinnati, during a rainy weekend, would be a healing time when he was going through a pretty tough patch. So let's join Scott to talk about Barbecue Frito Twists, Walls of the Cave, filling up your gas tank as we discuss Fish's show from February 22nd, 2003 at the U.S. Bank Arena in Cincinnati. Scott, welcome to Attendance Bias. Hey, thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I've wanted to talk about this show for years, literally almost well decades now at this point. So I'm thrilled that you chose it. But to get the audience clued in, you chose Fish's performance from February 22nd, 2003 at what was then called the U.S. Bank Arena in Cincinnati, a rainy, cold, sleet-filled weekend. Um, And I can't wait to talk about it, but this is your show. So we'll get into it in just a second during Fish's return from their first hiatus. Uh, But to get to know you a little bit, let's get started with the attendance bias lightning round. Attendance bias lightning round. So, Scott, when was your first fish show and what do you remember from it? Okay, so my first fish show is August 15th, 1998, day one of Lemon Wheel. I'd gotten into fish about three years before that. I'd say 95. Uh, I think I, within two weeks, got a copy of Hoist and a live one handed to me. Uh, I was already somewhat on the jammy train at that point. Uh, you know, I like my Grateful Dead, but hadn't really dipped the toe in the pond yet. Missed an opportunity to see them in 96 uh, in Detroit and then got an opportunity to teach in Korea in the early part of, of 1997. And so, well, everybody I know was heading to the Great Went. I was, you know, getting used to kimchi and uh, and other <laughs> delicacies uh, over in Korea. But uh, by that time, you know, I'd, I'd taken some tapes with me. I actually found a dude to trade tapes with. In Korea, which was pretty cool. Uh, we were starting to get some of even some of the uh, summer of 97 tours coming in. I timed it. Well, I don't know whether I timed it or not, but the universe timed it so that when I got back, Lemon Wheel was going to be my uh, my first show. And uh, yeah, almost didn't make it. Unfortunately, my grandmother passes away on our way out. We literally turned the van around, came back, went to the funeral. My dad gave me his blessing and said, no, if you can make this do this. And so I'm from uh, London, Ontario, which is uh, halfway between t- Detroit and Toronto. Uh, so we drove through the night and we got there. And, uh, you know, by the time Mike song played that first note, I had tears running down my face. And there I was in the middle of it all it was fantastic. Uh, do you remember 
what your first fish moment was like how you first was it through the grateful dead because you said you were listening to them ahead of fish yeah yeah for sure so um unfortunately i never got a chance to see the dead uh again i was i was jam adjacent at that point um and <laughs> uh and and you know had uh had a few boots had had you know was was sort of making my way into that world but i was also coming from that time from a pretty heavy rock grunge background but i was really sort of fascinated by what was going going on in that world and then it really didn't take that long for me to 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 fall in love it it really was sort of love at first sight so it was great and what's your overview memory of lemon wheel and its legacy i only ask it because i have this feeling this thought that almost every fish festival has its own personality and lemon wheels kind of the middle child that gets skipped over when you look back at the legacy of fish like the clifford ball was the first big time the great went is unquestionably in my opinion Mm -hmm. one of the best musically speaking big cypress is a world of its own even it in 2003 or oswego right they have Mm -hmm. their own mega personalities but lemon wheel people just kind of take it for granted do you agree with that or do you have a different view because you were there no, I, I, I totally agree. And I think we're going to see, uh, and I might even be talking about this elsewhere, but we're going to see a real renaissance for Lemon Wheel next summer when we say we hit the anniversary, which it'll, it'll be, you know, 25 years. And I think a lot of people are going to dig back in at that point. I think obviously another attendance bias, but I think uh, there's some great playing in, in those shows. Uh, I think there's a lot of fun stuff that happened at Lemon Wheel for people to kind of dig back into. It doesn't sort of have your you know, your went gin or, or whatever may have you, but uh, you know, some, some of the playing and, and certainly some of the sets and of course the ambient jam, if that's your thing, which it was for me. And in one of my all time top fish memories of lying in a sea of candles and just listening to my favorite band bliss out, it was, it was phenomenal. So um, yeah, I think lemon wheel does get overlooked. Not as like you want to talk about the, the redheaded stepchild. I think Oswego really kind of gets, gets a bad rep that way, but um I would put Lemon Wheel way above it from a music standpoint, and uh, I would invite anybody to go back and check out those tapes if they're looking for a, a great summer vibe, because uh, there's some great playing in there. What's your most recent show, and what did you think of it? Yeah, so la- most recent show was uh, June 18th, 2019 in Toronto. I am a Canadian, as some of your listeners may have picked up by, by the accent. We'll see whether we get that in the comments or not, uh, but <laughs> I don't think I have an accent. Everybody else does. Uh, not the show this summer, but, uh, there were some things that were cool there. The, the stash was a really nice stash and really happy to hear that that played. Uh, it was the first three waves, uh, which I predicted, uh, would have a big future. And, uh, well, turns out, uh, there was at least one more significant version of that played that summer and, uh, hometown shows are always really special, especially for Canadian fans. Um, I think one of the things we'll dip into is it, it's a little bit different being a Canadian fan than an American fan. Obviously we have. Uh, proximity uh, if things are swinging through some of the Midwest or New York state and lots of Canadian fans go all over the place, just like other fans. We just have a border to contend with that, uh, that not everybody else does. And Toronto and Toronto shows get kind of dumped on, but let me tell you, I, you know, the 2000 show probably still stands as one of my favorites to go back to. Uh, we had the rain, the rained out show. I I have an incredible record of having tickets to fish shows that get canceled of which there are not many, but Toronto and curveball, uh, you know, top that list, but yeah, it, it, Toronto, it, it's almost a flyover, but I predict this summer, you, you, this is going to be the year that the Toronto show hits. 
Well, I'm curious when yeah. you mentioned that about the Toronto fans or Canadian fans in general will travel anywhere. Whenever I talk to someone who lives in a place where fish doesn't frequent that often, what is your radius? What is your travel radius? Do you, is it by hours? Like how many hours you would travel to see fish? Is it get on a plane? Like what is your general? It's too far. It's not too far. That's yeah, that there is no too far for Canadian fish fans or any, any, any fans for that matter. Right. If you have the means, you will find the way, uh, especially now that we've started opening up the Mexican frontier and we'll talk about the lightning round, uh, the, uh, well, I guess we're in the lightning round, the, <laughs> the, uh, I went to big Cypress. So that was obviously my, my biggest, best, but my general radius is eight hours is reasonable. Uh, I'm a father. I'm also a teacher. So like a lot of these things have to be sort of uh, gauged around that. But, you know, for example, this summer, uh, pine knob for sure, Toronto, and then looking at blossom, but see if we can fit it into the timetable. Uh, but if it's a weekend, you know, maybe, you know, all bets are off kind of like the Cincinnati show, which was only about six hour drive. Speaking along those lines, what's the farthest you've ever traveled to see fish? Yeah. So that was Big Cypress. And that was an adventure. Eight eight of us jammed into a Winnebago, leaving in the middle of a Canadian winter to end up in a swamp <laughs> 31 hours later. But uh, what, a, what a time and, and what a memory. Just one of those tentpole moments, not just from a fish perspective, but from a life perspective for me and uh, and and making it into that and being there for arguably one of the biggest shows they've ever done. What is the band that you've seen the most other than fish? Um, <laughs> this is going to come off as awfully terribly Canadian cliche, uh, but it is the tragically hip. I have to say it. If, uh, if there was another band that I was following around a lot in the nineties uh, and for those listeners that may not know, the tragically hip is probably one of the more premier Canadian uh, rock bands, but not simply just rock. If you talk about the lead singer, especially Gord Downey, who unfortunately left us uh, a few years ago, uh, we're talking about an improvisational poet who uh, who absolutely was electric. Um, and in the same way that Fish improvisationally keeps us coming back for more, you never saw the same version of some songs, especially, uh, you know, I'd highlight something like New Orleans is Sinking, where he would often go on a monologue, improvised poetic rant. So, yeah, I, I'd seen the hip quite a bit, uh, especially in the 90s. Uh, other than that, Broken Social Scene, which was more of a regional thing. They they just were around a lot and amazing, and you went to see them every time you could. And uh, I'll just give a little teeny tiny plug for uh, some Canadian jam music as well. There's, band yeah, called Bert, there's the band called the Burt Nielsen Band, who uh, who at that the, the sort of jamisance of the uh, late 90s, early aughts um, was, I would argue although there are many other very good bands uh one of our more prominent canadian jam bands and uh i i saw the burts quite a bit what is your favorite post-show snack oh yeah this is awesome i've been waiting <laughs> to talk about this so like <laughs> i don't want to call myself a snack tourist per se but there are <laughs> certain uh snack products that are only available in america and not available in canada and so uh it is it is always one of the great joys of prepping for any show to hit up your local tops or whatever the the local grocery store may be and just take a walk down that snack aisle and see what's different or what's still there that you've loved before uh, I'm going to give a shout out right now to uh, Frito Barbecue Twists. They are they're consistent. They've they've been around for a while. I can't get them here. 
I buy an extra bag or two every time I'm there. Uh, I just, uh, we just were in Lewiston to see Goose a few weeks ago. And man, it was so good to be back in, you know, hitting a show in the States and hitting up that American snack food aisle. It's so funny you say that because the grass is always greener. I went to college in Buffalo, so right. I would go to Toronto or Hamilton to see shows every once in a while. Uh, mm. String Cheese Incident, I remember I saw, I think it was in Toronto. I'll double check that. But to us, it was a big novelty to get Molson Triple X. <laughs> and it's like, oh, like they because they didn't have it yet for sale right. in the United right. States. They would eventually. But right. going to uh, shows in mm-hmm. in Ontario almost exclusively yep. uh, yeah. or going to uh, Blue Jays games, stuff like that. It was yeah. like, oh, well, let's we got to go. We got to get poutine. We got to get Molson Triple X. We got, you know, and so the biggest difference I thought is when you said going down the American snack food aisles, the big difference is calories almost exclusively, you know, it's, it's, it's probably better for the rest of the world that there are some things you can only get in America. (laughs) True. True as you say, but it's always like the different, like I'm a, I'm a salty guy. So like Uh particularly the chip flavors, like I I'm a sucker for a new chip flavor anywhere that I go. You're really, you're really uh, putting a very specific time stamp on yourself with the Molson triple X though. That's uh that is a that is a bygone era and a product Aww. that no longer no longer exists anymore. But uh, well, that's cool that you're from Buffalo. My wife grew up very close to uh, toward that in Port Colborne on the other side of the border. But to wrap up the lightning round, what is the weirdest sure. thing you've ever seen at a fish show? Yeah. Oh gosh, I love when you ask this question because you just know in your listener's mind there's there's like a million different like little <laughs> micro incidences that you saw in a motel parking lot somewhere or at a. At, I I I think the weirdest stuff always happens at festivals. Like I, it. That's how I became a festival addict. Was not just obviously the music, but just that traveling circus and how it all seems to land and make a city a weirdness. But for me, the, the, the weirdness, the weirdness that I like about fish or the thing that I always connect to it in sort of the general energy of the universe is coincidences that happen. These, these unexplainable things that only seem to happen when you are at or on your way to, or coming from a show. Right. And so like uh, we uh, hooked up at that lemon wheel show that we talked about earlier with a group of uh, folks from Michigan who then became uh, pretty constant traveling companions through the nineties. And actually we would meet up with at this, uh, at this show in Cincinnati. Um, And we have like so many coincidence stories with them. Uh, One being like one of the guys lost his license at Oswego, like lost his license needed to cross the Canadian border to come to the Toronto show that was happening just afterwards. We were actually going to host them up in in Canada and he was going to have to drive all the way back around to Michigan when they were from to grab ID and we had stopped for gas and literally in the parking lot of this gas station, which was just down from where Oswego was, some guy ran up to him and like held out his license to him and said, are you this man? And he's like, I am that man. Why do you have my license? Right. And they literally just found it on the tarmac at Oswego, picked it up. It looked like one of their buddies and he got like we our whole day changed at that point like we we were just you know huge celebration and then it goes back that same group of people like we were looking at our pictures from lemon wheel and then we were looking back at other pictures and 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 they were looking back at pictures of the great went and i i wasn't there for that but they looked in the background they're like hey there's there's this guy and that guy but that's impossible because we didn't meet them until 98 and then they realized that they had been raging beside the same group of people that we would connect with one year later stood beside them for the whole show. They're in like three pictures 
and and yet the the connection wouldn't be made until all those years later. It's just it's wild the coincidences sometimes that happen at these shows. When was this show played? So the 2003 tour was the band's return from their 18 month hiatus. It's probably, I mean, this is opinionated, of course, but it's probably their best tour in the 2.0 era. I prefer this one over the summer 2003 tour, although each obviously has their highlights. This one, though, the February 2003 is filled with all-time fish shows. For the reputation it has, there were only 12 shows on this Mm -hmm. tour. And to boot, it was a winter tour, which is extremely rare these Mm -hmm. days, especially now. Uh, which, you know, we don't get that anymore for the most part. Uh, Off the top of my head, I wasn't even thinking too hard about this. Some of the easy-to-name highlights from when you think winter 2003, uh, Bathtub Gin from the tour opener in Los Angeles. Uh, There's a five-song second set from night one in Vegas. There was another Segway Fest, night two in Vegas. These two nights in Cincinnati, we'll get a little more specific in a little bit. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the odd BB King sit in, which from everyone I've spoken to who was there looks a lot better on paper than it <laughs> did in person. I was not there, but that's what I've heard. Uh, the obvious all time show at the Nassau Coliseum on the 28th. Uh, there was a whole episode on this podcast about that one with my friend Slade and the closer, the tour closer on March 1st in Greensboro with the You Enjoy Myself into Proud Mary encore. And my memory of this was the insane anticipation. This was the first online fish tickets by mail. And I remember not getting tickets for that uh, New Year's Eve 2002-2003 Madison Square Garden comeback show. The tickets for that show felt impossible to me. And so there was a tremendous amount of pent-up demand. You mentioned earlier this kind of neo-jam band movement at the end of the 90s, early 2000s, I feel like so many more people got into fish during their time off. There was this big vacuum of venues, like who's going to make that buck? And hundreds, it seemed, of bands rose up to get there and kind of in a mirror reflection. So people got more into fish. More people Mm -hmm. did, at least. Yeah, this this 03 represents a lot of people's first shows. Uh, There's a whole generation of, of, you know, 2.0 kids. I know for a fact that, like, I remember... Uh, because we used to have to like call in our American tickets to Ticketmaster in the States and like being there on the phone with my friend while I was trying to get, you know, 221, he was trying to get 222 uh, and just the joy and and celebration when we managed to, to nail tickets to both. It just, it was for us, like New Year's was never going to be possible. Hampton was never going to be possible, but those Cincy shows just sitting right there on a weekend, two nights stand, it just it just all felt so right and and yeah total total joys and celebration when you you get that person on the line and remember talking to a human ordering tickets oh i used to stay i used to keep ticketmaster reps on the phone for an hour just <laughs> live, giving them names yeah. of different bands and different acts and they would have to type in to see did anyone have any uh, any scheduled shows coming up yeah. there was not everyone had their own website yet, especially older classic rock acts that were not yeah. as old back then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I, so that's how I found out whether or not there were shows. Fish, of course, had their Donny Vice, and their website was actually quite modern yep. for the time. It was recently updated. So there was never any question with Fish. But yes, I do remember having to call in early, get the local phone number, not the 1-800 Ticketmaster number. That's right. That's right. To try and get tickets. So if they were oh, playing yeah. a show in Cincinnati, you could call the New York Ticketmaster. That was kind of the secret 
at the time. That's funny. Yeah. We used to call Michigan. That was our sort of closest to, to get to, too. But yeah, good stuff. Yeah. And it was the what you just said that this Cincinnati two night run, which was the 21st and 22nd of February, I went there for the same reason, because it sat on a weekend. And the other opportunity that my roommate and I at the time were looking at, I was in college at SUNY Buffalo at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were looking at that Nassau Coliseum show a week later on the 28th, because that's where I'm from. Right. Originally, at least. <laughs> and it would make a whole lot of sense to go down there. Free place to stay. My parents' house is literally minutes from the Nassau Coliseum. Uh, everyone I knew would probably be there. But it was, I think, on a Wednesday. It was like right in the middle of the week. And it's an eight-hour drive. Mm-hmm. Maybe it wasn't. I got to double check that. But it's an yeah. eight-hour drive, basically, especially in February from Buffalo to Long Island. Yeah. It's a long, long road. And That's so <clears throat> and when we looked it up, Cincinnati was seven hours. It was a little bit closer. Neither of us had been to Cincinnati at the time. And I don't know. There was something more adventurous about going to a new place you hadn't been before two night runs you know also you know there's 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 a certain magic to that as well these days they're more liable to stack back-to-back shows but not as common uh back in those days as well so anywhere where you got to stay put for for a night always added a a little bit of extra special and i would argue maybe one of the best two night runs of of that era oh certainly i i don't think that you're not going to get much of an argument back for that. So I remember from this weekend, my friend and I barely left the hotel room because it was so <laughs> cold and nasty, uh, raining, snowing, sleet everywhere. It just wasn't enjoyable to be outside, even though it was our first time in town. We actually stayed in Kentucky right across the bridge. So um, did we. We, I yeah. thought that was really interesting. Yeah, we. I, I didn't know that I could stay in Kentucky and go see a show in Cincinnati until uh, until we booked that. So yeah, that that was kind of fun. At the time, there was this unbridled enthusiasm and this optimism. First of all, they were playing really well, and just the big sense that Fish was back. You know, we had no idea what would come. Roughly twelve months later, that it wouldn't be as exciting mm-hmm. as it was in February. Uh, But there was this unbridled enthusiasm of, oh, my God, we're going to see Fish. They have all this new music. What was your uh, impression of the new 2.0 round room stuff? So I I liked it. I mean, I'm a I'm a round room truther. I uh, (laughs) I I like the uh, I like the warm nature of that recording. There's there's a looseness to it, of course, but uh, I do like the material. I I do defend the material. We're excited to see some new stuff. And. Overall, like you say, like it had been since 2000 and since that time, I mean, I really, I did some, some pretty heavy touring in 99 uh, and a, a couple shows in, in the aughts. But then after that, this, this whole jam band scene that I was in fish was gone, but Trey band was there. And, you know, I'd mm-hmm. gone to deer Creek and Columbus to see Trey band and, and like all this stuff. And, and I was as heavy into jam band music at that point as I had ever been in my entire life. And so when the announcement came that they were coming back and, and these shows the the energy in that room was just to this day, still one of the most purely joyful right off the hop, give it right. Everything you've got from start to finish, just pure celebration mode. Uh, I do have similar memories uh, about uh, about the weather and the uh, I mean, we're Canadian, so you won't hear us complain about the weather that much. But there is something about that gray, wet, like we we stuck 
pretty close to the to the hotel but it was so good to like there was a lot of different scenes coming together for me there there was all these canadian jam band kids that i was hooking up with that i'd never been to a fish show with because i'd met them in the subsequent years leading up there was old tour friends that we were meeting from all over the states that were you know helping us out and setting us up with with all the things that one needs when one has to cross a border and and the border got <laughs> crazy at that point too. Like, I don't know if you remember this, but post nine 11, oh, the, the, the Canadian border, I mean, it was always a bit of a challenge, but um, you know, we got stopped going to a tray show. And like the question at the border was, I can't help but notice that you all have beards. Wow. Really L- long pause. And like, so there was this whole just era of like, okay, no more stuff and stuff in our socks anymore. We got to, you know, we got to tighten it down. So anyway, we met, we met up with friends and, and everything sort of came together. No real lot seemed to, to speak of. We almost ran out of gas. That was hilarious because <laughs> apparently I found out on the way there that my gas uh, meter was broken and that it should have gone all the way to the E as opposed to not quite to the E, but we sputtered in. Uh, I traveled there with uh, with the guy that I'd seen that first lemon wheel show with and the guy that turned me on to fish who had just broken up with his girlfriend, but decided that he was going to bring her anyway. Hmm. Uh, I thought that was kind of weird, except now they're married and have three kids and everything worked out. So maybe, you know, fish had a small part to play with that. I just met my girlfriend at the time, six weeks before, who is now my wife and I have children with. And so, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was a, it was a weird show kind of getting there for the, for the, the tour, the, the trip. But once we got there and settled in, you know, all the friendly faces, all of it started to come back. Uh, and we, uh, we were ready to get down. That's for sure. So why do you have attendance bias toward this show? Why did you pick it? For a couple of reasons. Same as you say, uh, 21, um, you know, it was just kind of a checklist. You're like, yes, 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 yes. And it's your first show back. So you're after a while. So of course you have that sort of enthusiasm. I think both the fans and the band had a really good night on the night of the 21st. I think everybody came into night two pretty foggy, rather groggy. And, uh, and, and there's that sort of that energy in there too. I don't, I can't, I couldn't remember. I was trying to hunt this down before the show. I think it was during one of Trey's solo acoustic shows that he told a story about him and Paige in Cincinnati uh, and the fire alarm going off at their hotel. And that was the 21st. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, so, you know, you, you know, the band had had a special time uh, in on that two night stand for sure. Uh, and it just, yeah, the, the whole thing had a, had a party. But the reason I gravitated when you asked me which one of the two I wanted to do, there are like three very awesome 2.0 moments there that I just think not enough people have have dove into like everybody else. I worship at the church of 228 every year. You know, you know, what's going to be on my stereo on that day. Uh, But these shows, like if the buy-in wasn't there before, man, boom, instant buy-in then. And then on a personal note, you know, this, maybe the theme of this whole thing is kind of good times, bad times, but uh, I got diagnosed with cancer two days later. Uh, on the 24th. Um, Not that I was planning on seeing any other shows that tour. I remember that time with such absolute clarity as you do around these times. And I really held on to those shows as a a boy in a very, very dark time in stormy seas. And, and, you know, music saves my life in more ways than one. But at that point, that definitely was one of those things that I could reach back to in my darkest moments and say, okay, you know, there are good times ahead. Your favorite bands back together. You're going to see live music again. Eventually uh, I did hit 
it later that summer. I'd gotten through all my treatments and I'd completed my, you know, radiation and I was back and, and it was actually very manageable for me. And, and that was fantastic. So I had a lot of optimism in my own life, despite that, that sort of darker time. And I had a lot of optimism for fish at that point. It's, it's just, I can, I can see 2003 with such clarity. Set one. The first set opens with the sloth, which is a big opener. You could hear the crowd going nuts. I remember exactly where I was. I was on the lower level, straight back from the stage. Okay. And I remember this big, big explosion. This is the first time I saw the sloth live. Uh, the quality of the audience recording that I used to prepare for this talk isn't very good. It's very boomy. I feel like that was generally the sense of summer 2003 before people had the ability to remix at home, you know, before Pro Tools and such, whatever audio audacity, whatever sort of uh, programs existed. But you can hear that this is the first opportunity for most Midwest fans, other than the show at Allstate Arena in Illinois, to see fish, that mm-hmm. everyone was back for the party. And there's a big breakthrough about three and a half minutes in. It's encouraging. It's like I wrote in capital letters, fish is back. And Mm. they were able to kind of master these complicated Zappa type changes that hailed all the way back to their earliest days. I feel like these complicated parts getting nailed was kind of rare toward the end of 1.0. So this just kind of stoked the optimism of what was to come in 2.0. We didn't know. Yes, we, we, we certainly didn't. And, and complicated might've flown out the window sooner than we had expected. But mm-hmm. uh, even I, so when I took a listen back, getting ready for this um, and I've probably listened to it a couple of times via the, the live fish app. So the soundboard, you can still hear so many times in this show. Uh, you know, audience pops straight through, right? Just like, boom, like, like it, it's, it's, it's palpable. You can hear it in the band. Uh, the proficiency was there. I lost the bet that they were going to open with the, with the Wicked Pog, although it would surface <laughs> later. It's a, it's a great buy-in tune, right? Old and new fans alike, you're, you're in. Yeah, I, I agree. Buy-in tune is a great way to phrase it. And the next one, the follow-up, Dog Stole Things, is also a buy in tune. It's fair. It's, you know, fairly rare. Uh, it's, it's very basic, right? Big piano solo, big guitar yeah. solo. We're in, we're out. Kind of like Jesus left Chicago in that mm-hmm. sense. It has that same idea. Uh, it was the, the tone. This is when I first noticed that Trey's tone is a little different than it was throughout most of 1.0. It's a little bit more brash. It's a little harsher. Uh, it's not drastically different yet. But this was a good one-two punch to open the show, and everyone is still just floating in complete joy at being back at a fish show. Yeah, I mean, I I, <laughs> I don't love as much as I I, I tolerate dogs. Uh, I uh, 
I have a special place in my heart for it because it was on a great went tape that I, I wore thin, you know, at one <laughs> point in time of my life. Uh, but yeah, you're right. As far as like, you know, brand recognition and okay, here's dog stole things. This is a song probably not a lot of people have seen or heard rarity. You know, I, I'm sure I wasn't like, you know, booing it at the time or anything like that. I'll say, I'll sing along just like everybody else. Again, you talk about that one, two punch of like, you know, they didn't try to throw a new song in there. They didn't try to like, you know, and, and again, this is night two, right? So like, um, what can they bring to the table? How are they going to surprise us? The, the eternal surprise that always keeps us coming back a sloth dog stole things opener. Yeah. That, that'll do the trick for sure. And more, you know, talk about surprises coming right up. Piper is, or it would become oh. one of the big jam monsters of 2.0. You kind of knew, I would say by the end of this tour, whenever you heard Piper start, you were in for yeah. at least 15 minutes. Like there was a uh. big jam coming. And this is a monster jam. There's a big cheer at around three minutes once the jam really gets started. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of my first, other than maybe the 2001 or Down With Disease from the previous night, what I would consider kind of my first taste of 2.0, a little bit looser, a little bit less coherent. I don't mm-hmm. know, a little bit less tight, but yep. still Fishman would hold it together with the drum beat. He never went too far off. He was always your center. First of all, first set Piper, you're just hoping and praying that it's, it's not short and it's not, you know, under underutilized, but like you say, Piper wasn't really, I mean, it was a jam vehicle at that point, but not, the, the sort of swirling chaos that it's going to become in, in 2003 when it really digs in, like, I just, I, I guess I just have a, a memory. I don't know whether I've implanted it or, or whether it's just kind of the whole show in general, but like, I was kind of like you, I was, I was uh, in the, in the lower bowl back from the stage, great shot of the lights and, and the whole crowd and just everyone getting down hard early and 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 those looks that you just give one another when like <laughs> like page pulls out a new keyboard sound you're like what was that or the or that or the or like trey growling guitar and you're like dirty trey what are you doing to it like there's just there was new sonic things being explored there and and uh like you say not not necessarily tight but like uh, just this soundscape, this sound wash that was coming over you and undeniable energy as the band pushed it harder and harder and harder.
you know, and, and this is sort of our last era of, I won't say total machine gun tray, but of, of super fast tray, pushing those fingers and picking hard, you know, uh, in, into those notes and, and page is playing with some new keyboard sounds in this too. I, I wasn't able to sort of mentally identify what he was using, using there, but like there was a lot of new sounds coming at us and it went so long and we were so happy. Yeah, and everyone else got super happy soon enough because this is, I think, the first time it ever happened. Piper segued directly into Weekapaw Groove to kind of close out the mic song from the 21st, the night before. I have to double check fish.net, but I think this is the first time that Weekapaw was played on its own outside of mic song. Right. I think there might have been a 93, uh, but I'll let you I'll let you put that in the uh, at the end. I'm excited uh, to find out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But also, um, you know, we were waiting for it. Uh, and it it's not it's not just a throwaway segue either. It's a it's it's right there. It's they are flying. Poor Mike, like just dig in. Like because we've seen this happen before. It's not the first time that that they brought back Wikipog at a at a clipping pace, but it's coming off the energy of that piper, and they are just hucking it. I wonder if I, my thought is that Trey, especially or the band knew that they were going to stuff Weekapog somewhere in this show. And mm-hmm. maybe they were just kind of having it on the side of their brain, collective brain, where it's like, all right, where can we do it? Once the opportunity comes up, we have to pounce. I don't think they necessarily planned for it to be Piper into Weekapog, but mm-hmm. someone I think Trey starts it, the those chords and yeah. someone, you know, kind of said, all right, this is an opportunity. Let's go for it. And it's a very democratic Weekabog groove. There's no lead, which is unusual because usually mm-hmm. it's either uh, Trey on guitar, almost always, or yeah. 
page on piano leading the way or organ. And I didn't really hear a lot of that here. It's really spread out, which I really love. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's cool that way. The other thing about the, the pog segue is always finding a key or finding your way to the key of Wikipog, right. which is, um, I should have looked this up beforehand, but it's not a, it's not a standard or easy key to find your way to uh, something tells me either Mike's or it is an F. And so you can't naturally find your way there from a lot of other uh, songs. So there must've been something that they did during the Piper jam. Cause it's, it's the segue is very, very, very smooth from a, a melodic standpoint. But yeah, it it does. It gets it gets kind of quieter near the end, and it's not that it runs out of gas, but it it little, little hints of that spacey ambient stuff that they played with before. that would become much more common as the 2.0 era would go on. Uh, after that, they played Dirt, which is kind of a much needed cool down. Nothing exceptional, nothing less than good. It just, we kind of needed it. We all needed a breather by then. And then after that is Scent of a Mule, which is the first time I ever heard it live. And I remember thinking, this is what I'm missing by not being there, by listening to it on tape. There really is a lot of theatricality, or there could be theatricality to this song that doesn't really resonate when you're listening to it without being there. Yeah. I miss scent. Um, and, and that's not a common, that'll be my unpopular fish take, even though I, <laughs> I didn't get asked, asked that question, but I do because somewhere along the way, it just wasn't cool anymore to be that goofy and sing a little bluegrass ditty and have a little, you know, mule duel in the bit. But when I think back of my earliest memories and things that helped me bought in buy into this band, especially live, like you say, it's fun. They are having fun up there. And that's something they used to have a lot of fun doing. It's interplay between Mike and Paige, which isn't always the easiest thing for them to attain. Uh, and uh, and again, my first fish is hoist. So it, it, there's a nostalgia piece to that, too. Um, yeah, I bring back scent. I'd, I'd love to I'd love to see <laughs> I'd love to see some of the, the, the newer kids uh, get that sort of fun moment in their show. Yeah, I remember Fishman leaning over the front of his drum set and playing a drum roll with his sticks on the front of his bass drum. Yeah. <laughs> to start it. And yeah, you're right. It's 
immaturity such as it is, but it's like very well-crafted immaturity is mm-hmm. essential to the fish experience. And Scent mm-hmm. of a Mule displays that for sure. And just like that, we're close to the end of the first set, not quite there, but close where they play Walls of the Cave, which I, I've i said it a billion times on this podcast, was not a huge fan of as it came out. Uh, I have some deep-seated problems with this song, uh, although this version is often considered one of the best ever. We have to talk about this. I, right, I'm, a wall, I'm, I'm, I'm a Walls of the Cave backer. Uh, I uh, There's always been something about, especially the back end of that song, when Fishman gets his like, yeah, the silent trees. Yeah, the silent trees, the tomorrow never knows, whatever you want to call it, right? It's it's that beat, and and it's just so driving. Well, again, uh, instrument bias. I I'm a drummer. One of the things I play, and so I I just always love the the rhythm of that and the, and the harmony of it. Thematically, I mean, we could always argue about you know walls of the cave thematically and where it plays into the whole post September 11th world and that kind of stuff. But that night to hear walls of the cave as one of my favorite tracks from Round Room and then have it go as long as it did. It's way longer than I remember, by the way. Way yeah, long. Is. Like, like way, way longer. And it, it's it's not a really go anywhere jam because like a lot of the times you play something for the first time and try to take it for a walk, you, you know, you stay on the same path. So it's not typically innovative, but it'll make the jam chart, I'm sure. Um, but I, I, I haven't heard of walls like it since. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And it's not the walls of the cave that we know now. All the pieces are there. It's not radically different, but it's like there's a second jam it starts at eight minutes when today, if we heard it last night, for example, that would be mm-hmm. closing the song, but it actually quiets down. It gets more laid back than usual. Uh, it's unusual for walls of the cave. If they played this version from the 22nd last night, it would be heralded as completely unique. Technically it's a type one jam, but it at every moment seems poised to break out and experiment. Like it's building, but not to any sort of intense or insane level just going in all directions at once. I mean, at 15 minutes, we're at a full-on jam, but it's not very melodic. And then it's really fun because by the end, they come back to listen to the silent trees, which they don't do anymore.
well and well yeah. at that. Yeah, they're yeah. So Mike and Fishman are really sort of locked in this kind of rhythmic drive. Um, and then they nail it. They they nail the landing. And if this was the modern era, we'd be waiting for the lights to come up for for set break at that point, right? right? right. Uh, but it wasn't that song yet, and we still got a couple more to go. Right. Next up is Mountains in the Mist, which is another slow ballad, kind of taking the place of dirt, or at least doing the uh, pro- providing the same service that dirt mm-hmm. did earlier uh, in yeah. this show. Um, another uh, rarity that we don't yeah. hear that often. And then they close with Sample in a Jar. Yeah. And I got to package this one together again in in the sentimentality attendance bias way uh my friend i'm gonna give him a name call here mike tomasi he's he's the guy that we got into fish together we did all these shows together for the bittersweet motel uh screening in our town we did a uh we did a solo acoustic show him and i and we learned mountains in the mist and covered that as a rarity for that night because how you can impress heads but play something <laughs> from the the japanese version of farmhouse that doesn't get played that often and uh, and then sample in a jar is was like note one, one of the first songs that we ever kind of bonded over over this band. So like I we must have hugged each other 17 times in that mountains and sample in a jar for us. You couldn't have tailor made a better ending to a first set for a show that we loved. Set two. The second set opens with tube. I wrote at my first note is this tube is probably one of the best they've ever played. Nowadays, there's been a number of really great versions in later 3.0, at least the second half of it, I would guess that we're in. I remember mm-hmm. for the beginning of 3.0, tube kind of reverted back to this four and a half minute uh, pacemaker song that like, all right, we, we're <laughs> going to, we need a little filler. Let's play tube. But yep. starting with maybe around the Baker's dozen, they started expanding it again. And there have been great versions that, live up to the late 1.0 era and this one uh the beginning of 2.0 it almost immediately gained a reputation as one of the 10 pole jams of this tour it's a superlative version yeah what a buy-in song like it's instant dance party this is this is 2003 in a nutshell and how they were going to play the crowd for that second set get them dancing get them grooving um, I was a little hesitant when fish came back. I'd heard the new year's tapes and, and, you know, obviously there was some warm up jitters, but like when I heard this tube and I, I, you know, I, I follow the Twitter handle did tube jam Yeah, yeah. this, this, this tube jammed.
it'll make a believe. I th- honestly, I think a lot of naysay jam bands uh, added tube to their repertoire after hearing this tube. I know at least one Canadian jam band did, and it was just what a fun, fun dance party. And uh, they were on firing on all cylinders. Definitely. It's got everything. It starts funky. It's got stop start jams. Uh, there's Trey digging into his harsh tone, which is getting a little bit more common in the second set and then would become more common throughout 2.0. Uh, it's elevated. There's new levels, lots of patience, syncopated jams. And then at, it gets cooled down about nine minutes long. They mm-hmm. awkwardly get back to the coda, the blues coda toward the end, about nine minutes yeah. and 40 seconds. They could have gone on forever. That was one of those tubes where it honestly felt like that that was just the obligatory. They they just had yeah. to like, oh yeah, right. We have to do that. Otherwise, they would have blown the stop sign on that blues jam and and, and just kept it going. Cause um, you know, Fishman's a beast in this one. He's he's really sort of driving things along. That dirty, filthy tray sound, which we first got a glimpse of during that piper and is gonna come back in that gin. Um, yeah, it, it's just so iconic. Uh, I would encourage anybody if you're gonna pick at this show, hit the tube. For sure. Agreed. And speaking of that gin, that's up next. And I, I think of February 2003 as the pinnacle of bathtub gin, kind of like 95, maybe fall 95 also has a reputation for great bathtub gins. The ratios are a little bit different, though, because this tour was only 12 shows long and bathtub gin was only played three times, but all three times it's one of the best ever. All mm-hmm. Each one is listed on the fish.net jam charts. And this one, I'm just going to read uh, the jam chart description. Intense and highly improvisational jam with more of a rocking, propulsive, and edgy sentiment in this way, similar to the 94-95 gins. In the final minutes, 
the band toys with the gin theme in a dark, twisted manner. I think that pretty much covers it all, but we have more to say because we were there. Yeah, we sure do. Um, There's gin is one of those songs. I just feel like the band when they're getting warmed up from any time that they've taken time away and off is still always there for them. Um, They're the muscle memory. It, 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 even if you think back to like, you know, 2021 that we've just gone through some of those early gins is where they could really feel comfortable and kind of stretch their legs out and, and, and try new and different stuff. But it, this one in particular rides some big energy. Now there was a glow stick war Mm -hmm. and you'll hear, I, I I think it's in and around the three or four minute point. um, And I remembered this and then I had to double check it. So I snuck on the internet and took a little peek at a YouTube video, but I was right. It was the glow stick catch. And so someone hocks a glow stick and Trey catches it. And then, you know, big cheers, throws it back. And that just encourages, of course, more glow stick throwing. Now, I have a mixed relationship with the glow sticks. As a musician, I can't imagine what it would be like to have that many people throwing shit at you all the time. Not only that, I got beamed with one of those like ninja star uh, like oh. throw it like ones at uh, I think it was Oswego and like really hurt. So I, I, I have a glow stick bias. It's fun. It's great. I'd think better in an outdoor setting, but stop chucking them at the band for God's sakes. Like why, why, why that move? I've never understood it. I hate that Trey has to worry about that. But that being said, it does account for some, if you listen to the tape, some of the big swells and the big energy rises. And of course we know that that, without those glow stick wars, then the band doesn't hear those swells without those swells. They don't kind of catch that wave that becomes the big improvisational jams that we love. But, you know, as far as the, the guitar itself, it it is a kitchen sink jam in the best sense. It, yeah. you, you really can compartmentalize it into about three different suites, if you will, some blissy,
some, uh, you know, it, they pick up the pace at some point when they they know they're going to run with it and they feel like they're going to run with it. And then, of course, uh, Trey hits that uh, whatever that sort of harmonizer pedal that he has to kind of twist up the theme and begin with, uh, you know, bending the notes. And I just I love when they do that. That's like me too. That hits me in a in in a spot every time. That's my kind of cronky wonky craziness. After that was Friday, which is a necessary, straightforward ballad. Like they're they're really pacing this show very well. Mm-hmm. They know where to stick these uh, ballads and these slower, cool down songs. And this one got a share of hate in two thousand three from myself as well. You know, I'm not immune. I'm not going to lie and rewrite my own personal fish history. I kind of sighed. I would roll my eyes when they would start Friday. I don't know. It's it's not terrible listening back. I mean, my thought while listening to the show to talk about it is I think they could pull this song off now. I don't think that okay. they could have pulled it off in 2.0. That's funny. So Friday's fresh then, right? It's, yeah. it's fresh off, off round room. It's Saturday and it's a funny, <laughs> it's a funny callback because why isn't it Friday today? Let's, let's do this all over again. You know, the, the lyrical content uh, is, is there. Uh, I, I, it's, it's not going to crack my top 10 fish ballads of all time, but I was trying to meditate on this because we, we have different views on, on the 2.0, especially the round room stuff. Why do I love this song? 
a, I think I have some recency bias because it kind of lands with me as a dad right now. There's a very, you know, childlike questioning song. Don't know whether Tom, I can't remember whether Tom wrote that or whether, you know, but you know, they're all becoming dads at that point. Um, and I'm also sucking a sucker for that when that E drops into the D and it's just, it, it's a key change, but it's just so seamless. And then Mike's got that very comforting tone. Yeah. It's a nice balm to kind of put on after the sunburn radiation burn you just got <laughs> from that, uh, that, uh, gin and it's a five song second set. So you're going to get, you yeah. know, a ballad and it may not be your favorite and it's going to be probably one of the more recent ones. But as we know, those more recent ones. Uh, tend to grow on you. Like, I can't wait to hear my first lonely trip. I'm like so excited because that song is just warmed its way into my heart right now. I can't wait to cry my eyes out the first time I, I hear that live. I'm with you. I mean, I heard it at the MSG run in April of this year, but I think the big difference in addition to everything you said, and you kind of referred to this is the maturity of the crowd, the age mm-hmm. and maturity of the crowd. I don't know, all the, these childlike questions, or if they played Lonely Trip in 2003, I would make yeah. the same eye roll that I would for Friday. But hearing it now, knowing what Trey's been through, knowing the emotional weight that all four members of the band, and I would imagine 99% of the audience has gone <laughs> through, Yeah, we're, I think we're a little bit more accepting, although very vocal online about criticizing, because that's never going to change. But I think we're a little bit less apt to just dismiss a song entirely. I think that's kind of the timing for Friday was off. It was before it's time. I I agree. I agree. That's that's a strong take. And then it's forgotten because we're about to get crushed by a (laughs) Bowie. Yeah. And as a fun, goofy intro, this David Bowie does with strange prog noises. That's the best way I could think to define it. And Mm -hmm. then there's a standard composed section before they get to an evil jammer on eight minutes that it's not unlike parts of the probably best Bowie ever of December 29th, 94. And then Fishman takes over a few minutes later. They really move in for the kill with this Bowie. They're deep in the show. They're deep in the set and they are ready to really put a bow on this show. Don't you miss the time when, a, when you had that sort of, is it maze? Is it Bowie? Is it maze? Is it Bowie? Is it maze? Is it Bowie? Is it going to crush? Crush. I'm, I'm, I'm in the, the camp now for, for people for a louder Bowie. I want where, 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 where's the Bowie sans, you know, where it, it's, it's one of the, the last of the oldies to break out in the new era. Maybe, maybe this is the tour. Maybe we'll see it, but uh, I agree. Um, high praise comparing it to the, uh, the tell 12, 29, well, portions of the jam, not portions of the jam. Yes. Yes. But like, yes, you're right. There's, there's, there's a darkness to it. There's, they're clearly like no fear, reckless abandon.
Um, every idea is a good idea. You can tell for sure. Uh, and then, uh, and then, yeah, Johnny B. Fishman's just, just crushing it. Even like playing parts of his like untraditional parts of his kit, right? Like he's like hitting like, you know, rim shots and like playing off it. Of, like, yeah, they're, they're definitely, definitely feeling it. Uh, and then Trey goes back and forth between sort of that showing, you know, he, he still got the speed and the blaze and then just wanting to make scrunky, rocky, dirty noises and and we were eating it up like that was people will will maybe not remember a time but that was very new uh and something that was talked about a lot afterwards in the lots and back in the hotel room what was uh just trey's new tone and the yeah the the dirt and the and just you know what 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 does that represent where are we going to go with that how is he doing that that was the big question all the gearheads are like how is he making those noises and then he would push it to the extreme by the end of 2003, when they did their fall, what was it? The fall Thanksgiving run. And mm-hmm. then 2004, mm-hmm. it would just keep going, keep going, keep going until we barely knew what we were listening anymore. Well, then it became a crutch, right? Then it became yeah. something that he could very easily hide behind. And unlike the effects these days, which arguably, I think not hiding behind is not the right word, but it's certainly, you know, he'll lean on an effect if, if, something's not going his way technically per se, or maybe that's just a hot take of mine. In these days, I think it, it matched perhaps some of the chaos that was going on internally within the man, as well as coming through his speaker externally. And closing the second set is bug. Although Bowie would have made a perfect set closer. I'm not complaining yeah. about bug. You know, it's, it's really, it really grew in 2.0. One of the few songs that did, I think, uh, aside from the newer material then, uh, but it builds with perfect rock anthem dynamics, strong guitar solos, pretty good backing vocals here too, which wasn't always the case because they didn't practice as much mm-hmm. in that era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice throwback to sort of my heaviest touring days in 99 and, and 2000 as well. Seen lots of bugs. It's one of my favorite sing-alongs. Um, they really, they owed us nothing at this point. It could have been a four song set, but uh, it was a nice sort of goodbye. Thank you for the weekend. It, it, I, I see it as uh, when the band plays that song, I see it as a hug to the crowd. Mm-hmm. And to close the whole show, they went off, they came back on for the encore. Susie Greenberg, kind of a gift bag, you know, a way to send everyone home happy. Yeah. Here's here's a question for you. I'm yeah. going to interview the interviewer just for a second. Do you or do you not sing the Arrowhead Ranch horns when Susie Greenberg is played live or not? In my head, I do. Every time, right? It's almost yeah. impossible. Yeah. it's almost impossible (laughs) to extricate yeah so you know what a great Susie too like it it, it's uh they they maybe sound a little bit tired but uh I I think you know as far as the Susie encore goes what else are you going to do in 03 send us home with a with a classic right and it's not just work a day yeah there's a huge sing-along like there is for this entire show but also there's stop start jamming, which gives mm-hmm. Paige like a real piano solo, not just kind of filler fun, which yeah. I, I don't mean that derisively, but like a real piano solo with clapping along from the crowd again uh, at four and a half minutes. And I don't know, things that like jazzy kind of New Orleans second line style. It's not just your everyday Susie Greenberg, which we would have been just as pleased with anyway. You're right. You're right. And And at that point, you know. We are euphoric. We are yeah. we are celebratory, and so too is the band, and uh, that's that's why this one's getting the shout out. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining me on Attendance Bias today to talk about February 
2003 at the U.S. Bank Arena in Cincinnati during Fish's first comeback tour of the few they would have over the course of their career. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, for me, at least, it holds a really special part in my heart as I was getting ready in college to get in my car and go all over the place and do improvisational trips. And, oh, Fish is playing here. Let's just get in the car and go. And then they went on hiatus right when I got there. So this represented something greater than the music. It represented this adventure. And it was wonderful to talk to someone who had a similar experience and had just as much or more to say about it than I did. So thank you for being here. No, I appreciate that, Brian. I think 2.0 is one of those things that we're we're still unpacking in a lot of ways because we're still mining it. Um, and uh, I think that winter tour is just the best of what it was and, and what it could have been. And I think a lot of us sometimes just fast forward to to the new times and the good times and, and just kind of sock our 2.0 memories away in a spot. But like, People got to remember there was a lot of optimism and a lot of joy in those shows, and uh, and it and it shows and it, it's it's worth it's worth dusting off every once in a while. Thanks to Scott for today's interview, and now it is time for the attendance bias fact check. Attendance bias fact check. At the time of this February twenty second two thousand three show, the venue was called the U.S. Bank Arena. It is currently the Heritage Bank Center, a new name that was changed in 2019. When talking about snacks, I mentioned seeing the string cheese incident in Toronto. The date of that show was October 13th, 2003 at the Cool House in Toronto, my 21st birthday. In a nod to the Canadian venue, the band opened with Powderfinger by Neil Young and closed the second set with Tom Sawyer by Rush. My understanding of calendars was not at its best during today's conversation. Since the 21st was a Friday, it would only stand to reason that the show a week later at the NASA Coliseum, February 28th, was also on a Friday. I suppose the two-night run gave Cincinnati the edge over NASA at the time when my roommate and I were deciding which shows to hit and which shows to skip. According to Fish.net, the Weekapaw grew from this show is the first ever standalone version of that song. And finally, Scott emphasizes the length of Walls of the Cave played at this show. According to Fish.in, the track runs for 20 minutes and 47 seconds. The Fish.net jam charts describes the performance simply as, quote, extended type 1 jam with building energy. Still, not bad for the song's fourth live outing. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks to Scott King for joining me today, Fish.net for its help with the fact check, and Fish.in for the recording used in today's episode. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show. You can do that by leaving a rating and a review of it on any podcast app, and especially by financially supporting the podcast at www.buymeacoffee.com slash attendancebias. Every penny helps. Thank you so much again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias.